Please sit comfortably. One thing I wanted to begin with in this Dharma talk was not actually the essence of the Dharma talk, um, but it's just a reminder about the nature of session, which I've spoken about with you before. But I've, I've likened in the session in the past to <clears throat> uh, being like a drug rehabilitation ward mm -hmm. in a hospital. And we're all addicted. You see, that's why we're all here. We're all addicts. And when you look at the, the psychology of Buddhism, you know that 12-link causal link, you know, the wheel. But when you, when you look at it clearly, and as I've spoken about it with some of my psychiatrist colleagues, um, it's really clear that it's describing an addiction cycle. And that's why in, in Buddhist psychology we're using terms like craving, you know, grasping, craving, which are the terms we use for, for addiction. So we're all addicted, we're all addicts, that's why we're here. And um, this is like a, a rehab centre and detox centre. And what happens, to remind you again, in case you forget, that the first two days often you do session is a detoxing period. And you often don't feel very good. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. And uh, that's because you're detoxing from all of the things that you're addicted to in your everyday life, that I'm addicted to in my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And we're reward-seeking animals. We're always looking for rewards. So we're looking for our next cup of coffee and our next cup of tea in our predictable way. And we're looking for nice conversations with people and maybe we're looking for compliments or praise, you know, whatever. Um, but we're, we're all addicted to something. That's why we're here. And um, so... Just to remind you, the first few days, like any drug rehab program, will be detoxing. And, and it'll be a kind of a, oh, what's the point being here kind of experience, you know, and it's a bit painful and so on. But like anyone going through a detox, you can't, it all passes, you know, and you come out the other side of it. And um, as I, I notice after usually two days of session, um, people have settled and it's easier to, to sit and somehow just to be comfortable being present because a lot of that, that addictive quality has settled down through consistent um, sasan practice. But um, detoxing is just the uh, beginning, you know, and then, then the rehab work begins. And, uh, and as with all addictions, one of the, one of the uh, characteristics of all addictions is relapse. Yeah, so all people with addictions relapse, 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 and they keep on relapsing until they somehow they get it, you know, and they don't keep relapsing anymore. And um, and we relapse. We go back into our everyday life and we relapse in some way and we come back to session. But every time, like in the process of working with someone, say with an alcohol addiction, is that generally speaking, each, each relapse, like, okay, it's a mistake, but each relapse you kind of learn from, you know, and, and if you learn from it, you keep getting unhooked from that addiction pattern all the time. Almost every, every time we meditate and every time we do session, that, that addiction cycle is weakening 
in some way. We still may get hooked up at it, in it at times, but it's weakening. We're getting to see through it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what I wanted to talk about today was not so much um, looking at Zen from a psychological perspective, but to look at the, the bigger picture of what Zen practice is about. Uh, you may have read or you may be familiar with um, uh, an essay by Dogen Zenji called Uji. U-J-I, which translates as being time. And uh, one of the most important things that Dogen says in that essay, which is a bit of a challenge to the Western logical mind, um, is that we are time. We so often think of ourselves as passing through time. But Dogen reminds us if there's no separate entity, if everything is all of a whole, then we are time, we're not separate from time. And neither are we separate from space. Mm -hmm. In Buddhism, uh, we refer constantly to emptiness and transience being the the, the way we describe reality. And emptiness refers to space and um, impermanence or transience relates to that time dimension. So we're always living in space and time. Mm -hmm. We get caught up in our own little dramas, you know, or our own psychological preoccupations, but all the time we're living in this wondrous thing which is called space and time, existence. Mm -hmm. um, Dogen referred to it as Uji, and also the German philosopher Heidegger, um, who was very much influenced by Zen. He was a closet Zen practitioner, came out towards the end of his years, changed the way we look at Western philosophy. He, he referred to, he wrote essays on Daisen, uh, which is, translates as existence, being in the world, or even, even being time. He wrote about being time. And uh, so even from that Western perspective, as well as the, 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 the Asian perspective, this sense of coming into appreciating the fact that we're embodied in space and time. That's going... That's happening every day of our lives. Mm -hmm. And yet so often we, we miss the big picture. Mm -hmm. um, Dogen said, to study Zen is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by the 10,000 things. Mm -hmm. So the first step is kind of almost to study the self as kind of like psychology, like understanding our inner dynamics and our addiction cycles and what it is we're particularly addicted to and what we particularly have an aversion to. That's the beginning. But if we stay there, there's not a, there's not a progression forward. It needs to then flow into forgetting the self. Mm -hmm. And forgetting the self in 
action, you know, forgetting ourselves in the everyday things that we do, forgetting ourselves in service to others, right? that's, that's the next step on. And when there's a forgetting of the self, then we're, we're open to being awakened by the 10,000 things. You know, we, we awaken into something which is more um, bigger than what we are, just ourselves. And that's, that's the sense of connectedness that with life. It gives a kind of a meaning to life. Um, because, as many of you know, I'm a sailor, I often think of sailing as a metaphor, as many people have used sailing as a metaphor for life or the, the experience of life. And, and when you're out sailing, you know, I mean, first you choose to go sailing, you know, you, you do it. And when you go out there, you don't know what kind of conditions you're going to get. And sometimes you get really, really difficult conditions to sail in where, like some of the most difficult conditions to sail in, is not so much a gale, but where it's kind of um, a bit of a doldrum and it's really calm and then a, this strong gust of wind comes out of that direction and you get your sail set and then it comes from that direction and that direction and then it's calm again. You know, that's the, they're the most difficult um, experiences in sailing. And, and if it's sort of cross seas and so on at the same time, that makes it very uncomfortable. Do you know, when you, if you're prone to seasickness, your crew gets seasick, do you know, and don't want to be out there, do you know, or they want to die, they want to jump overboard. You know? And uh, so you have those experiences. And, and then you also have the experiences where, um, and, and often, Often at those times where the wind's changing direction and it's gusting and then it's quiet and so on, is often a period of transition, you know, where the weather pattern's shifting and then you get another steady wind coming in from another direction. So transitions, like dealing with that adversity and that difficulty of randomness and not having a direction and so on, and being able to stay in that transitional stage where things are sort of jumping around, you just sold your house and you don't know where else you're going to move to or you just lost your job. You know, you don't know where you're going to get the next direction from. Mm -hmm. staying, staying in that place where everything's at sixes and sevens. Mm -hmm. It's a good place to be. And then you have the other experiences of sailing where you just get a, a really lovely steady trade wind and, you know, and off you go and there's that sense of just flowing through the water and the water going past you and, and the wind in your face. Mm -hmm. But, and that's what life is like, we have those kind of adverse experiences and the transitions and, and the sense of flow, you know, when, when things are all moving in the right direction. And yet, the joy of sailing is not knowing what you're going to get, you know. And, and even if you're out there and you're seasick, you know, and there's cross waves, cross cross waves, and and um, you know, the winds flip flopping around everywhere. You're still out under the sky. You know, you're still out on the ocean, and even though, you know, there might be this sense of unpleasantness, like, well, it's unpleasant, but we're out here on the ocean, mm -hmm. and there's something wonderful about that. And when we realise that we're always here in the ocean of space and time, regardless of what our 
personal circumstances might be, it's kind of, wow, you know, we, we get to see the bigger picture again and then everything shifts. There are a couple of people who um, do Zen practice with me who I'm in regular contact with who have um, chronic pain. Um, and we, we experience a lot of pain during session, most of us. But these people experience what we experience in session um, day in and day out. And, um, and a couple of them are really, really committed Zen practitioners. And so even though the personal circumstances of their life are that they experience a lot of pain, um, nevertheless they still find a joy of being alive. Mm -hmm. um, just like you could choose not to go out sailing, you could choose not to live if you didn't want to, but these people choose to live, mm -hmm. even though the circumstances of their life, you know, are not are not easy to be in. So, despite our personal circumstances, you know, we we see there's a way of seeing beyond them into something which is much larger. Zen, practicing Zen is essentially about the art of living, not so much the science of living, well that might be informed by that, but it's really the art of living. And it's like any kind of art, it's like being, for example, like being a musician, you know, playing a musical instrument, it's an art that you learn, and being a musician and practicing to be a musician is very different from being a sound engineer. We're not, we're not here in session doing Zen practice to become sound engineers. We're here doing the equivalent of learning to be an artist with life. Mm -hmm. A sound engineer may be able to measure all the you know, different nuances of sound and record it and so on and explain it scientifically. But that doesn't mean that you can pick up a guitar and play it or play the piano mm -hmm. or make, make meaningful sound. Mm -hmm. um, as much philosophical knowledge or as much scientific knowledge or neuroscientific knowledge we might be able to accumulate about Zen practice, that's, that's not what it's about, it's about being an artist. And when, you, when you're studying the art of anything, and, and to remind you, you know, in um, Japan, um, there's a lot of arts that flourished through Zen practice. Take tea ceremony, for example, pottery, mm -hmm. shakuhachi. Um, they're all applications of Zen in movement and in everyday life. Mm -hmm. So to really, to be an artist of life, you need to be able to sit still like we're doing, mostly, but as a human being you also need to move and you also need to have a transition through time. And if you're doing something like playing music and learning to play music or doing tea ceremony, then you have to move from one, one pro, move along as the, as the ceremony or the song progresses to the next thing, the next note, you know, the next phrase. And what's involved in that 
is learning to be really mindful. Like tea ceremony is a pra- an aesthetic practice in mindfulness. And being, being really mindful of each movement that you do, you know, and, and, and holding things with, with great gratitude and so on. And um, so it's doing that, and then at the same time, it's the practice of forgetting yourself in the act of doing it. That, that's the next shift on, forgetting yourself in the act of doing it. Mm-hmm. So you don't get hung up about mistakes. Mm-hmm. If you're doing tea ceremony or if you're a professional musician, you make a mistake and you keep on going. Mm-hmm. Or like in session here, when we make a mistake, we make the mistake and we keep on going. Because what's so important to an art form, whether it's tea ceremony or music or whatever, is that experience of being able to, to go in the flow. I know it's a bit of a cliched expression, but it's really true to the essence of what Zen practice is. It's about to come back to this issue of space and time, particularly time. A Zen life is the life of being in the flow of time, right? without a contradiction being there or a conflict there. The fact of life is, is that life is impermanent, it's transient, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't get around it, it's just a fact. And yet, when, we, when we're addicted and we're holding on to things, we're living a life which is contrary to that fact. Mm-hmm. That's why when we have the experience of flow in our life, um, there's that sense of not being in, in conflict or in contradiction to what actually is occurring in the movement. You know, there's one with it. Mm-hmm. And that's very important to Zen practice that we are practicing mindfulness, not just in still meditation, but in movement as well. All the movements we do, the everyday movements as well as the, the creative movements of our life. Being present in the flow of life is also to make a distinction here. It's different from reflection. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with reflection. It's important as this time in our life for reflection. But reflection is, is um, going over what just happened. You know, or it's re- reflection on the past. What just happened? It might be something that happened ten years ago or three seconds ago, but it's a stopping and reflecting about what just happened, and that that is a useful process in life, you know, and it's part of spiritual practice, like in um, Christianity, you know, to reflect on on your thoughts and your actions and your speech and so on. We do that in we do that in Buddhism as well, but but to be Totally preoccupied with reflection is not the Zen way. You know, not being present. You're always being present to what just was, and trying to work it out and evaluate it, and then you're not in the flow. Mm-hmm. So, Zen experience, being in the flow of the present moment, is just just being with each passing moment as it comes and goes, without any attachment to it, no grasping, no aversion, moving along in it. When there's no conflict, 
then you're in the flow. When there's no resistance to the flow, you're in the flow. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a very that's that's essential to a Zen life. Um, James Austin, who um, some of you may know, wrote the book Zen and the Brain. And uh, I'd been in some correspondence with James a few years ago because um, I found out that we had the same uh, Zen teacher in Japan, Kabori Roshi, and we had a bit of correspondence. But if you if you read one of his latest books, he's got a chapter in there called Avarian Zen, Bird Zen. And um, he is emphasising how in the Zen literature um, that bird singing or bird calls have often been the triggers that have been the, the awakening. They're one of the 10,000 things that wake us up. Mm-hmm. And what he's emphasising about um, birds and bird song is how random it is. Mm-hmm. You, you just tune in, you know, in the mornings or during the day to the birds. It's just completely random. You don't know where it's going to come from. So. The other aspect of life and of transience is not only is it transient, but it's not transient and predictable. It's transient, well, sometimes it's predictable, but a lot of the time it's unpredictable. But most human beings want the, want the, the certainty of predictability and look for predictability in their life and, 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 and develop a life built around predictability. Um, and yes, there is predictability. There's predictability in the form of session that we use. We use a routine. But we're not just trying to cultivate predictability for the sake of predictability. We're trying to actually go beyond that to create a space in which we embrace the unpredictable and the random. And so. The predictable makes people feel comfortable in a, in a kind of um, false kind of way. But, it, but that's all you, you're wanting out of Zen practice or a life, for things to be predictable. There's so much richness that you're going to miss. And so sitting here in, in silence, you know, moment after moment, is being just open to the randomness particularly through sound, you know, and the birds, just the randomness, unpredictable nature of what is the next moment going to bring mm-hmm. and being there to meet it. Mm-hmm. And if we can translate that into our everyday life, that, that's what will transform your everyday life, not being addicted to prediction, logical, boring prediction. Mm-hmm open up to the anarchistic experience of existence. So to end with, do you know those words we recite in um, Haku and Zenji's Song of Sazen? Coming and going, never astray. Mm -hmm. When we are astray, it's because we're Um, not in the flow of time. Mm -hmm. 
Not as though we stop coming and going, we're coming and going but never astray. So when unpredictable things happen or predictable things happen, whatever happens, we're never astray because we haven't got a fixated idea of what it ought to be. We're not fixated to optimistic ideas of how things should be or pessimistic ones. We're just realists in the moment. Coming and going, never astray.